Welcome to Christ Church. The following is a homily from our Sunday morning gathering in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Enjoy. Tradition on Trinity Sunday is that the um, associate or the curate gets to um, preach and try to explain the mathematics of the Trinity to you all. My good friend, Dr. Kara Slade says, quit trying to explain to Trinity, just preach the ding-dang gospel. <laughs> so I'm going to try to bring some gospel this morning. There's a, pa- a podcast called I Was Wrong About, which explores ways in which we are wrong about people or events or stories. And they did one several years ago on Tammy Faye Baker. Everyone remember Tammy Faye Baker? And what the podcast says is that our image of Tammy Faye is built far more on SNL's, um, the way they presented her, than who she was in real life. Tammy Faye never felt really loved as a child. She was an illegitimate child, and her mother would keep her away from community gatherings for fear that she would be rejected. There's this really powerful scene at the beginning of her movie on HBO in which she would try to sneak away to go to church, which her mother said she was not allowed to attend because they wouldn't understand her. She had this deep awareness that God loved her, but over the years from um, her husband um, to the culture to her mother, she was not ever really convinced that she was really and truly loved. I think we all worry if we are honest that that's how we experience God. That we get glimpses of it and we think God loves us and we're pretty sure that we love God, but sometimes we're worried, does God really care about us? Does God see us and smile? Or is God ambivalent about us? Are we like an annoyance to God or are we a delight to God? The readings in Proverbs and the Psalm 8 that we just read, both are very clear that God deeply loves us and deeply cares about us and is not ambivalent about us. Paul says in today's reading from Romans that we have been declared right with God. We've been declared right with God. How is it we're supposed to respond to that news and that proclamation? Do we have joy in the fact that we are right with God? Do we have relief that we are right with God? Maybe we doubt whether we actually are right with God. How does Paul know that we are right with God, we may ask? But Paul offers something deeper to us about our relationship with God, which is that we have a deep and abiding peace. In the first few chapters of Romans, Paul wants us to know and trust that the promises that God has made with creation have come to fulfillment in Jesus. And Paul's concern is that we will place greater trust in idols or our cultural gods than we will with the God that is revealed by Jesus Christ and through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can worship. This fear of turning to idols was one of the reasons that early Christians debated whether we should even call God Father. 
they were worried that when we said father, that we would immediately think of a male, a man. But as we know, God transcends all of those adjectives, names, and analogies, and that when we say father, we only can say father because there is a son. The off-quoted Romans 1 that we sometimes hear as a culture warrior type text has everything to do with the way that we connect to God and very little to do with who our romantic relationships are with. Paul notes that in Roman society that people are oftentimes trying to connect to the divine through food or sex as a substitute for God. And how different the God that is revealed in Jesus Christ is from the cult worship of the pagan society in which the Christians lived. Paul sees in Jesus a God who wants a warm and loving relationship with us. Again, I suspect that many of us truly doubt and question whether God desires such a relationship. We hear this, we might give lip service to it because we think that's what good Christians are supposed to say, but does God really care about us? I mean, surely if God is God, he has something more interesting to do than worry about what I am doing or not doing. As I mentioned, one of the primary challenges to us having a deep relationship with God is the way in which we create idols. But Stuart Fishoff, who's professor emeritus at Cal State, says that the very need to find an idol and follow him is programmed into our DNA. In other words, that we are going to create things to worship whether we like it or not, that we are hardwired to seek out and find and follow something that is bigger than ourselves. Nobel laureate and agnostic Mario Lusso comments that secularization has not replaced our gods with the ideas, knowledge, or convictions they might have in their place. Instead, it has left a spiritual void that human beings fill as best as they can, and sometimes with grotesque substitutes. If we think this is somehow a new problem, the philosopher Nietzsche said, you know, some 200 years ago, what was once done for the love of God is now done for the love of money, for the love of that which at present affords us the highest feeling of power. You want to go further back than that, you can go to St. Augustine who worries about these very things. You want to go further than that, go back to the prophets in the Old Testament who are all worried about the ways in which we replace a true and deep relationship with God with something that we can see and touch and feel. In other words, we are more than willing and oftentimes even eager to replace a relationship with God with something else. Money, power, sex, certainty, gambling, you all can all fill in that list and probably have your own that you say, Ooh, maybe that is an idol. Maybe the reasons why we question whether God is really interested in us or not is because that's what allows us to hold on to our idols that we have created. But yet this deep desire cannot be abated by the false idols that we create. 
When our relationship with God becomes muddled, our prayers often sound more like groaning than words, as Paul says. We aren't sure what to say, but we know something isn't right, and so something groans within us. This past week, Kristen and I served as deans or spiritual advisors out at summer camp. Kids did not come up to us and say, I'm homesick. They would come up and they would say, my stomach hurts. One kid had these constant growing pains in her ankle and needed an adult to hold on to her and stay close so she could get around. This groaning of the stomach and the groaning of the, the, the ankle was a prayer, a calling out for something that was deeper. They just didn't know what it is. And Paul says that's how it is with us. We don't know what it is that we're asking for. We just know that something is groaning within us. I wonder what your groaning is calling out for. I wonder what you might have substituted in your life in place of a deep relationship with God. Because Paul has some amazing news to share with us this morning. He says, through whom, Jesus, we have have obtained access to this grace in which we stand. Now, for those who are reading Paul 2,000 years ago, immediately would have been astonished by this statement because people didn't have access to God. People would have heard this statement from Paul and see a critique of the temple system which created layers and barriers between us and between God. That God's desire and purpose was that creator and creation are not separated from one another. And Paul, throughout his letters, is assuring us that those of us who have been baptized and washed with Christ's grace, that we need not tremble and that we have God at our disposal and that even more powerfully that God cares, that God loves, that God delights in you. That God understands our groans even when we don't understand what the groan is all about. That when we stand before God in grace, we have no reason to fear. We only inhale God's goodness. Paul asks us to celebrate the hope of glory, a glory that is often lost to idols. Ted Schofield, in writing about this temptation and tendency for us to find substitute idols says that religion can brainwash adherents to sacrifice to sacrifice others and themselves in the name of devotion we need not stop with today's headlines he says over the millennia many capital g gods have demanded death to infidels burned sinners at the stake condemned all those who defy their laws The dark heart of religion, of idolatry, he says, is sacrifice. We must kill that which doesn't align with what we think God is all about. But let's not kid ourselves, he says. Let's not fall into this postmodern trap of progressive secularism. Religion is not the only idol that demands sacrifice. Do we modern humans not sacrifice ourselves and others for money? 
Do careers sabotage our time with our children or elderly parents or helping our neighbor in need? The author says, as I sit in an air-conditioned apartment with running water and a refrigerator full of food, is there nobody left on earth sleeping on hot, dry dirt, starving to death, and drinking raw sewage? Set aside empathy, have humans ever been known to kill for money? Every cell in my body, he says, wants to deny the reality that every idol is a religion demanding devotion and adoration. He says, I fancy myself as a polished New Yorker, an artist above and beyond all unenlightened thinking. And he says, you might too. Surely, he asks, there is an idol that we can worship that does not require a down payment, does not exist to incite envy, that does not enslave us and render us anxious, hopeless puppets. Surely there is an idol that asks for our honest belief in its merit to be worshipped. Greed demands sacrifice. Each day I pay its heavy toil, he says, and slowly I'm beginning to recognize that every idol, every god and religion demands our sacrifice, individually and collectively. Wholly unable and unwilling to sacrifice itself for us, except for one. And he's the reason we're gathered here, and that's the good news. Amen. Amen.